This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Professor Ali Reza about his new book, Revolutionary Pasts, Communist Internationalism in Colonial India, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Dr. Reza is Associate Professor of History at the Lahore University of Management Sciences, or LUMS. So our first question is always biographical. Um, could you tell us where you grew up and how you became interested in South Asian history? Uh, thanks very much, Sami, for inviting me to your podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. I, uh, I grew up in Pakistan. I grew up in Karachi. I went to college in Lahore. And I never got any formal training in history. Um, I suppose that I, I should qualify that before I begin, uh, since it is a biographical question. I, in fact, uh, you know, majored in computer science. And there was little else that uh, someone from my generation uh, could do, uh, even if they went to an, a, a private college as I did. Uh, but, but my curiosity, I suppose, um, in history, uh, I suppose, stemmed from uh, basically, growing up as part of a generation uh, that was that, that that grew up with this cognitive dissonance of sorts, uh, there was the kind of history, obviously, that we uh, learned at home. Uh, the history that basically spoke of uh, those other stories that weren't that emphasized in popular culture, in the television we consumed, in the texts that we read at school. Uh, this was a history that spoke of populist movements in the 1960s, of student, uh, you know, movements uh, and tehreeks, uh, and 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 I grew up listening to those accounts, uh, including obviously accounts of you know divided families uh, across India and Pakistan, uh, and I came from that divided family as well. So uh, those kind of historical accounts, uh, as it were, uh, you know, stood at odds uh, with uh, the kind of history that we consumed um, in. Uh, in school, consumed in television, and so on. And, uh, and I suppose that uh, curiosity remained of sorts. Uh, I only uh, I only trained in history in my master's and then my PhD, uh, and 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 that's how I came to I came to learn about and fall in love uh, with the history of South Asia uh, generally. Interesting. Um, and and now you're back in Pakistan teaching students about that history. I am, yes, <laughs> indeed. And it's quite right, I have to say. Could you tell us about the genesis of this particular book? Sure. I, uh, I, I mean, I still remember that moment very vividly. I was in the British Library struggling to come up with some kind of a thesis or a research question uh, for my master's, which then made us way into my PhD. Uh, and I came across this uh, this treasure trove of files, uh, which uh, which looked at subversive movements, which looked at revolutionary movements uh, in colonial India, uh, and I was just fascinated. Uh, I mean, this this these are incredible stories of of incredible individuals who, in the colonial archive, you know, came across as predominantly as fanatical, uh, as subversive individuals 
who were who were basically kind of uh, you know who were only painted uh, in terms of their revolutionary intrigues, and that was a term that was used time and again. Um, and I just became interested in those stories uh, and really trying to figure out well what was it that made these individuals tick? I mean, what did they see? What did they dream of? Uh, what kind of what kind of uh, visions of emancipation, of freedom, of decolonization, of national liberation? All those terms that we use on a regular basis. I mean, what what did these dreams really mean uh, for them? Uh, and and also obviously the the related question of why is the empire so interested uh, in these individuals? Uh, and, and I'm just going by uh, that massive volume. I mean, the the the, the, the amount of paperwork and documentation produced on these individuals uh, is truly extraordinary, uh, especially uh, one, uh, especially when one looks at the eventual outcome of national liberation of freedom in, in South Asia, in which, uh, you know, none of these dreams actually materialized. And so, uh, you know, for that reason, amongst others, this archive tends to be, you know, perhaps uh, neglected. Uh, it, it's not given that much attention. Uh, as opposed to you know the usual suspects that one encounters in the archive. So uh, so I mean that, that that's I, I suppose a rambling answer, but but I suppose that, that gives a sense of uh, you know what made this what made this story so interesting uh, to me. Uh, and I just followed you know these individuals from file to file, uh, from document to document, uh, really trying to piece together these journeys, uh, these dreams, um, and, uh, and these lives. Um, and that's how I came to this book. Great, thank you, and um, and you begin, you know, your book with one of those people and one of those stories of uh, an Indian farm worker, Nena Singh, in Argentina in, in 1929. He was visited by a roving communist revolutionary, Ratan Singh, who convinced Nena to leave his work, travel to Moscow, and become a revolutionary. Could you read out a short excerpt uh, from the introduction that follows the story um, and expand on why you began the book this way? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, this is someone, uh, Nana Singh, who is a laborer who comes from what is now uh, Indian Punjab. Uh, and he initially first makes his way to Singapore in search of work, uh, doesn't quite, you know, find much success. Uh, then he, like, you know, uh, picks up his things and, and moves to Argentina, where he knows a few people who have already gotten some employment in the agricultural sector. Uh, and it's in Argentina that uh, Nena Singh in the in the 1920s comes across uh, this remarkable figure uh, called Ratan Singh, who's who has come in uh, from North America, of all places. Uh, he's affiliated with a with a with a uh, with a movement called the Khadr Party, uh, whose aim it is to to rid British India of of, of basically imperial rule. Uh, and and Ratan Singh is looking for recruits. Uh, and 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 he and he runs into Nana Singh and his and his and his uh, fellow workers, um, and 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 he tells a story of basically of, of communism, of liberation, of freedom, of independence, uh, and Nana Singh, uh, you know, is profoundly inspired by what he hears. Uh, and uh, and to cut a very long story short, uh, he makes a life-changing decision, which is to leave his work and 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 leave for Moscow um, on this road to revolution, and so. Uh, and, and so the excerpt that I suppose uh, might be relevant over here goes like this. Not only was the way to Moscow fraught with dangers, it also meant a life on the run from an unforgiving empire. And yet, they were irresistibly drawn to this life. It was no coincidence that Nana Singh spoke of a new spirit and a, quote, divine message. 
This was an appropriate description of the utopianism of his times. How do we understand this sensibility, especially in our present moment, which is marked by an entrenched suspicion of idealism and utopianism? Today, utopias and utopian visions appear as relics of a bygone era. But not so long ago, they were the hallmark of a rapidly transforming and tumultuous short 20th century. And I guess, uh, you know, this basically sets out uh, the, the central kind of theme of my book, which is to explore those dreams, those ideals, and those, and those visions that were associated with, uh, with the question of freedom, uh, which perhaps was the most frequently asked question uh, at this time. Uh, it may well be the most frequently asked question of the 20th century, which is to say, what ought freedom to be? Um, and, I, and I'm drawn, uh, you know, to this to this idealism of sorts because I, uh, I because again, as I said, my uh, my uh, or rather, as I hinted at, uh, the generation that I belong to, and the world in which we grew up in, uh, was marked by a deep suspicion of of, of utopianism, of idealism, and, and utopianism in some ways became a byword uh, for communist totalitarianism, for for for. For great experiments gone disastrously wrong, I'm thinking of uh, the you know the, the, I'm thinking of the legacy of Stalinism. I'm thinking of those massive. Uh, I'm thinking of gulags. I'm thinking of those re-education camps. I'm thinking of all those uh, tropes, perhaps, which are also true, of course, that were associated, that became associated with communism, uh, and, and 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 relatedly with this question of utopianism. Uh, utopia was was a suspect place. Utopianism wasn't was a suspect. Uh, you know, emotion with a suspect uh, ideal of sorts, uh, and, and and that contrast uh, between our moment, uh, at least the moment that I kind of uh, you know grew up in, uh, and that interwar era uh, could not be more striking. Um, and there, I, I was drawn to this to this uh, to to this to this uh, phenomenal range of of visions and dreams uh, that that emerge in the interwar era that are thinking deeply about a post-imperial world and what that world ought to look like. Uh, and I think that uh, oftentimes, and Manu Goswami you know, makes that point uh, brilliantly uh, in her work, is that uh, oftentimes uh, we, take, uh, the, we take the outcome of national liberation struggles across the global south as perhaps the only inevitable outcome of decolonization. Uh, and, and and yet, uh, you know, just a, a couple of like decades before that happened, uh, that was a moment uh, that was marked by an incredible array of, 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 of dreams that were associated with decolonization and what decolonization ought to be. Uh, and so that, to me, uh, was one of the most remarkable features uh, of this period, of the interwar period, which my book, you know, uh, is, is predominantly focused with. Uh, 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 it, it, uh, and, and, and my book, generally speaking, traces that history from the 1910s uh, to just after the 1950s. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you. And yeah, the utopianism and those visions really come through throughout the book. Um, and you really get a feel for, you know, how, how things must have felt for them. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us what emancipation meant for these revolutionaries. What distinguishes their visions for the future of India and the global order uh, from other Indian anti-colonialists, uh, for instance? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a fantastic question. And that's also 
A huge question, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> no, no worries, uh, because um, we're speaking of a huge uh, camp of sorts when we speak of the left uh, in India. And what that also meant was there were, that there were a range of, 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 of ideas when it came to this question of emancipation. But I think that if one were to really distill um, and really boil down uh, the two core kind of ideas... Uh, they were basically they were basically run as follows: that this was a project uh, that dreamt of a world that was free from capital and empire. And the word that I would and the word that I would emphasize uh, in this formulation is not capital or empire. The word that I would that I would emphasize is world, because that project uh, was not merely content with thinking about the question of liberation only in national contexts, or indeed in the context of individual empires. This was a project that was internationalist uh, in its scope, uh, in its ambition, uh, in its practical application. Uh, this was a project that dreamt of and that connected uh, anti-colonial struggles across different contexts that were bound uh, by this ideal of, 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 of transforming the world and ridding it uh, from, the, from, the, from the hegemonic influence of imperialism and capitalism that were two sides uh, of the same coin. Uh, and so that is broadly speaking uh, what communist internationalism came to represent uh, for many of its adherents, uh, despite their many obviously differences uh, amongst themselves, despite the many different ideas of what else freedom ought to mean. Like, for example, uh, emancipation also meant for many uh, reading India of the evil of, as they saw, uh, religious divide and communalism uh, and, 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 and basically communitarian politics. Uh, there were other kind of, uh, you know, uh, expressions of that that also thought about the question of gender equality and so on. Uh, so there are many variations, uh, but I think that if one were to distill uh, it to uh, it to a core principle, uh, it would be basically thinking about liberation uh, from imperialism and capitalism that is internationalist and that is global in scope. Great, thank you. Uh, and going from one really big question to another, um, your work intersects with a variety of historiographies, uh, but perhaps we can live it to two broad fields. Uh, first is the global history of the common turn, and second, the intellectual history of Indian anti-colonialism. Uh, again, I know this is a really big question, but I was wondering if you could situate your work within these two literatures. I'm happy to. I'm happy to. Um, uh, and, and, these, and, these, and these big questions also help me distill uh, what would otherwise be a very long kind of, uh, you know, elongated and rambling answer. So I think I'll start with this. Uh, that uh, that uh, I think the global history of communist internationalism, generally speaking, and this is a, this is a broad claim, but generally speaking, uh, it neglects the question of the world outside of Europe. Uh, China is a, is, is, is a key exception to that story. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, other uh, other colonized contexts, uh, especially India, uh, they don't quite feature in uh, that prominently in that same way. The global history of communist internationalism is still, uh, I suppose, the global history of European communist internationalism, uh, with 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 a very important side story of China also being featured into the mix. Uh, but uh, the Middle East, uh, Africa, South Asia, and so on. Uh, Southeast Asia, they don't really feature in in that same way, uh, which is kind of odd uh, because uh, the question of, especially South Asia, uh, is is huge, uh, especially in the early 1920s when it comes to the communist international, uh, for the simple reason that 
the, the revolution in Europe, or so goes the thought at the time, uh, cannot be attained without, without a revolution on the colonies. Uh, it's the colonies that make Europe possible, in other words. And so the colonies are a huge question uh, for the communist international. And so in that sense, I suppose uh, that this is uh, one edition, uh, a very modest edition, I have to say. I, I, don't, I, I don't think this is quite the book uh, that does that question justice. And I think that book still you know, remains to be written, which is, which is this larger story of, of, of this intersection of India and the communist international. Um, but, uh, uh, but I suppose that my book is a gesture towards that, uh, that, that points perhaps a, a direction. Uh, when it comes to points to a direction when it comes to the global history of the common turn um, and, 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 and tied to that obviously is the related question of uh, of, of, the, of, the, of the fact as I see it that the story of decolonization um, across the global south not just in South Asia is incomplete without also telling a story of communism at the same time uh, it's a deeply and a profoundly inspiring idea for anti-colonial revolutionaries and nationalists across uh, the colonized world. Uh, and so part of what my book does, it tries to situate itself in a global history of both communist internationalism and decolonization. And those two stories cannot be told separately from each other. Finally, I think that uh, I should also mention that uh, there has, of course, been a lot of work done on uh, Indian communism, relatively speaking, of course. But a, a large chunk of that work seeks to nationalize the question of Indian communism. That Indian communism, in other words, is basically seen as a national story. It's seen as an India-centric story. Uh, and my book also you know, seeks to depart from that. Uh, it seeks to think about those connections between Indian communism and their Soviet counterparts, and obviously other communist counterparts, especially in Britain, uh, it, it, it seeks to explore those connections on a much deeper uh, level. That this is a story of communism that simply cannot be contained uh, within, the, within the geographical boundaries uh, of the subcontinent. This was a story that was much larger than that. Uh, to the extent that, that that story does feature in, which is to say the story of how Indian communism was linked to uh, linked to the international communist movement. Uh, unfortunately, Indian communism comes across as a, uh, as basically a stepchild, uh, as uh, at best, uh, or, or or perhaps uh, you know a proxy agent, about which I will come to later. Uh, but, but but I think that seems to be the broad tenor, uh, and and I say this in full recognition uh, of an acknowledgement. Uh, of the many uh, of, of the many excellent studies that have been produced on Indian communism that don't uh, kind of you know avoid such questions and that actually directly address uh, the global history of, of Indian communism. So uh, that's the first bit, I suppose, when it comes to uh, that first part of your question about the global history of the Comintern. The second bit, and I'll be really quick about this, is that uh, this belongs uh, right there with the intellectual history of uh, anti colonialism in India. Um, and in that sense, my book really builds up on some fantastic works uh, that have come out in the past decade or so. Uh, I'm thinking of scholars like Maya Ramnath. I'm thinking of scholars like Kama McLean. I'm thinking of Daniel Elam. I'm thinking of Chris Moffat. Uh, and I'm thinking of, uh, you know, all those figures who have basically, you know, sought to write uh, the revolutionary history of especially uh, interwar India which looks at, again, 
which looks at again that uh, that that question of uh, those other dreams and those other uh, those other visions of Swaraj, of Azadi, of freedom uh, through the lens of Indian uh, revolutionaries. Um, and I suppose that uh, I guess this also builds up uh, from the many interventions that we grew up studying, at least in, at, at least that I studied in my masters, the interventions that came in uh, through the Subordinate Studies Collective and through the 90s that basically stemmed from, as I understand it, uh, this feeling that anti-colonialism had not really lived up to its promise, uh, that 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 uh, that that promise of anti-colonialism still remained unfulfilled, uh, and I think that that also was you know drove uh, you know historians um, uh, to to kind of like explore uh, well what those other kind of movements looked like and what those other kind of uh, you know imaginations were uh, that held out a different outcome uh, for national liberation for decolonization in South Asia. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for summarizing, you know, um, where you see your book in, mm-hmm. in these very big historiographies. Um, that really helps. Um, could you read out another short excerpt from your introduction uh, and explain what you mean by intermediate histories and communism of the everyday? Sure. Uh, this comes from page eight. And uh, where I write that my attempt is to excavate a history of communism and communist thought and the seemingly ordinary subjects who inhabited it. These constitute what I and others have called intermediate histories. Histories that occupy the liminal space between intellectual histories and biographies of elite figures and the autonomous, quote-unquote, subaltern domain identified by subaltern studies. This is, in other words, the communism of the everyday. The figures who dominate the following pages may not have contributed to Marxist and communist thought, if thought, quote-unquote, is restricted to political treatises and theoretical contributions. But they were subjects in their own right, with an acute sense of their time and place in the history they imagined themselves making. I, uh, by way of uh, a broader kind of uh, explanation, I was more interested in the rank-and-file members of these movements. Uh, in part because I felt that the historiography of communism uh, in India, uh, it focused uh, you know, far too inordinately on the leaders uh, of this movement who were predominantly um, men who came from relatively privileged backgrounds, uh, who produced these uh, phenomenal uh, interventions uh, in, in the history of Marxist thought. Um, I'm thinking of people like Emin Roy, of course, who's the most, perhaps the most celebrated and studied figure when it comes to the story of Indian communism. I'm thinking of Gangadhar Adhikari. I'm thinking of other, you know, figures on the left like P.C. Joshi uh, and so on. Uh, and so the, the, the historiography of the left more generally uh, in some ways seems to focus more on them. And, and, and part of the reason I suspect is because uh, they're viewed as 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 thinkers, as as those who as those who you know made those key interventions uh, in communist thought and Marxist thought. Uh, but I uh, you know was more interested uh, in those in, in in those ordinary members who made up the bulk of these organizations. Uh, what, for example, did communism uh, mean to them? Uh, and on their level, uh, going by their autobiographies. Um, you know, communism looks less doctrinaire, it looks more fluid, it is more embedded in specific landscapes and communities, uh, and 
uh, it draws you know very liberally from locally situated uh, social, cultural, and religious uh, resources. And, and, and that is what I mean by the communism of the everyday. Uh, and to my mind, it's this uh, that gave communism its drawing power, uh, that, that made communism a part of uh, that everyday local politics, uh, at least in the region that I examine, which is predominantly uh, North Punjab. Uh, and, and, and on that level, uh, you know, communism uh, looks very different uh, than it does if one were to go by the documents, or at least the official documents that were produced by the CPI, uh, or if one were to go by the documents that are produced from the Bombay High Command. Uh, communism at that level, at the, at the level that I'm looking at, uh, looks very different. And so in that sense, uh, this is not really a history that looks at that intellectual history and biography of elite figures. Um, so, uh, and, and nor uh, is it that is it that subaltern domain, uh, that that autonomous domain, as as Ranjit Guha called it, uh, it, it um, it's not that either. I mean, these are figures, uh, these are ordinary figures who who move around the world, who are part of this global uh, labor force. Of, uh, that, that is involved in obviously industrial capital that is involved in working in you know other kind of like countries you know simply you know t- uh, to make a living to supplement the income and so on. These are small, uh, basically landholders, uh, peasant farmers, uh, and, and 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 they become involved uh, in this global project of sorts uh, that is not at, restricted to the to their own uh, strictly speaking to their own local situation or their own local context, nor is it. Uh, restricted to uh, that elite kind of like politics uh, that these that these leaders of the movement were were otherwise involved in, uh, and so uh, you know in that sense uh, it's an awkward term I must admit uh, in that sense to my mind I mean these were that this made that kind of like space of you know more intermediate, uh, and this is a term uh, that that I uh, and, and 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 two colleagues of mine uh, and others uh, you know used in a edited volume that we brought out in 2014, uh, which was called the Internationalist Moment. Uh, and, and so I, I'd really draw upon that kind of like sphere, that, that frame of sorts uh, through which to situate it, uh, uh, through which to situate the story. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's basically the story of, 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 of how I came to be involved in thinking about the, of the story of the communism uh, of the everyday and what it meant to the figures involved. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Great, thank you. Uh, and that's a really excellent uh, edited volume as well, um, which I would also thank recommend you. to thank anybody you. listening. Um, another idea that you know runs throughout your book is the idea of these figures having what you call an affective relationship with time. Um, could you explain what you mean by this, uh, as it seems to be key for the argument you're making? I really enjoyed how you put affect and experience alongside ideas and politics in this book. I'm happy to. And I, and I think... Um... I uh, I suppose I, I see this more clearly now that I've written the book uh, in a way that I did not see uh, when I started writing it. And 
by way of a prefacing comment, uh, I think that uh, most histories of Marxism and communism, uh, rightly, uh, you know, the foreground a few key questions that came to dominate leftist thinking, and those, broadly speaking, were questions that revolved around uh, political economy. Uh, and, and, and Marxist thought and, and communist politics and so on was situated uh, within that framework of, uh, of, of, of political economy. Uh, and, and that, uh, you know, has been done uh, to great effect uh, and, and, and with much success. And I've learned a lot, uh, you know, from those interventions. Um, I, though, um, thought about, and now this is how I see my book now, that, that, that it effectively is a history of communism told as a history of emotions and dreams. It is, in other words, an affective history. Uh, of, and, and, and I think that that basically allows me to capture and to think about the allure and the enchantment of communism uh, that went beyond uh, questions of political economy. Uh, that Marxism and communism, however it was understood, uh, represented a much grander idea uh, the, uh, an idea that held out the possibility of transformation uh, of the world. Uh, and there is an enchantment of that idea. There is an allure in that idea that draws people uh, to incredible lengths uh, in their journeys towards revolution. And so in that sense, uh, I suppose this is a history of, uh, this is a history of communist movements told through emotions and dreams. Um, uh, alongside, as you said, uh, you know, those, the, the question of geopolitics and ideas and political economy and so on. So um, within that framework, uh, and which brings me to the other part of your question, within that framework, um, I was really interested in the question of time and this affective relationship that I saw existed uh, with their moment, with their time. Um, and I was interested in exploring what I understood to be a political subjectivity that is forged out of an idea of possibility, which is to say uh, that the present and the time uh, one inhabited, that they inhabited, uh, held out the possibility of radical transformation. Uh, this belief that this time could be ruptured, and I'm speaking now in Benjaminian terms, that this time could be ruptured, could be broken, uh, could be split apart uh, to claim a radically emancipatory future. Um, and, and, and that is a that's a profoundly different understanding of possibility uh, and of the possibilities that are held out by one's present, by one's time, uh, which seem uh, at least again uh, for my generation, they seem foreclosed uh, in, in uh, you know uh, in the time that we grew up in, in the present that we inhabit, uh, which is marked uh, and you know as as Frederick Jameson says by this deep suspicion, by cynicism almost. Uh, that 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 is skeptical of any possibilities of radical transformation, uh, and so uh, this is a this was a kind of political subjectivity, in other words, uh, that 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 was forged out of this belief of of of, of basically having that possibility of rupturing, what what would other what was otherwise uh, a linear and a hollowed out conception uh, of of time, and it was driven by uh, this conviction the certainty of sorts uh, that the flow of history was redemptive, that the flow of history was emancipatory. Uh, and that conviction in the forces of history uh, combined with this idea that this time was, an, was a time of possibility explained 
uh, in large part uh, those motivations and those political subjectivities that made this kind of politics, the politics of communist internationalism, possible. Thank you so much. And yeah, I, I thought it was really convincing and really powerful uh, and really helpful in understanding what um, these figures may have been thinking or, or experiencing. Thank you. Um, so this affective relationship seems to come through most clearly in Chapter 3, where you discuss the experiences of Indians like Dada Amir Heather in Moscow, uh, the Mecca of communist internationalism. Uh, you write that, and I quote, the world they bore witness to was one of the great, if not the greatest, political and social experiments of the 20th century. Moscow was not only an embodiment of a rapidly transforming world, it was also a glimpse into what a transformed world could and should look like, end quote. Could you expand on this through describing the experiences and reflections of Dada in Moscow? I can speak about Dada for, <laughs> for hours on end. <laughs> so I'll try to keep this short. I mean, his his story is a remarkable story. I mean, this is someone who Absolutely. is born in the year 1900. Uh, he uh, he doesn't like his stepfather too much. His own father, you know, passes away at an early age, uh, and uh, he grows up in the shadow of an abusive stepfather. Um, he runs away from home eventually, uh, you know, seeking refuge from his 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 his, 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 his stepfather and he makes his way to Bombay at the age of 14 uh, traveling without a ticket obviously uh, and uh, you know and it's in Bombay <laughs> that he finds yeah it's in Bombay that he finds uh, work in in the year 1914 on board a shipping vessel uh, and and at that time Indian labor is in huge demand because the war has broken out and so they're perfectly happy uh, taking on board uh, who someone who was effectively still a child uh, or a young teenager. Uh, and so Dada, you know, spends his his warriors, of, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, serving on one merchant vessel after another merchant vessel, basically, uh, basically being part of this huge, uh, massive, mobile workforce that were called the Lashkars, who who numbered into tens of thousands, if not more, who served on you know shipping vessels the world over. And this is a constantly mobile moving workforce that serves on one from, you know, from one port to another port, from one vessel to another vessel. Uh, and, and Dada belongs to that, uh, uh, to that workforce. Uh, this is someone who experiences visceral racism on board these uh, you know, vessels. This is someone whose horizons are, are, are being rapidly expanded. You can only imagine, I mean, you know, a teenager who had never set foot outside of his village until he was 14. Uh, is suddenly, you know, seeing the world uh, through a very different lens. It's the lens of obviously uh, the kind of like systematic uh, oppression that comes through uh, industrial capitalism. It is a world that is structured by racial inequality. It is a world that is mired in conflict between these rival powers and so on. But it is also a world that holds out other possibilities. Uh, and so Dada's stories, Dada's journeys at that time, during this period, is also a story of rapidly expanding intellectual horizons. Uh, and Dada's thinking through these questions in his own recollections, um, uh, as he makes a decision to kind of like, you know, ditch his job. And he ditches his job because he, he is fed up of the racism that he encounters, on, especially on American vessels, which are staffed by uh, Southern crews, uh, who were obviously coming from Jim Crow, uh, you know, uh, U.S., 
uh, and he ditches, you know, his 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 occupation. He he bails ship in, in just after the war uh, in New York of all places, and he spends, uh, you know, those following years in the in the in the early 1920s, basically traveling across the United States, doing one thing after another, until he finally finds a a job uh, in Detroit, uh, which at that time obviously is the center of of, of massive production. Uh, and in between, bizarrely enough, in between, he also learns how to fly. Uh, I mean, it's, a, <laughs> it's an incredible story. And so it's in Detroit. It's in Detroit that, you know, again, uh, he's in this in this vortex of sorts uh, of this of this hotbed of, of industrial uh, labor activism. And he joins uh, the Communist Party of the USA. And. Uh, the Communist Party of the USA in the mid 1920s is basically sending its carters to Moscow to get that, you know, political and military training uh, that would make them into card-carrying revolutionaries. Uh, and Dada happens to be one of them. And Dada then, you know, goes off on this journey uh, along with, uh, alongside other like Indian uh, revolutionaries from the Khadr Party, uh, and they eventually land in Moscow uh, in the mid 1920s. Uh, and that's when uh, the next part of Dada's uh, already uh, incredible life starts, which is to say that Moscow at that time is a lodestone. It is the center of global revolution. It is. Uh, it attracts communist revolutionaries and non-communist revolutionaries, anti-colonial nationalists, you name it, from across the world, from Jawaharlal Nehru, from Jawaharlal Nehru to Indian exiles to people like Dada. I mean, you know. There are people flocking over, uh, you know, from the, across the world uh, to Moscow because Moscow at that time does not just promise, uh, you know, a communist revolution. Uh, Moscow at that time also holds out the promise of an anti-imperial and an anti-colonial revolution. Uh, and so Dada basically joins the ranks of dozens of nationalities uh, who at that time are in Moscow. He enrolls in the communist university of the toilers of, of, of the toilers of the east uh, it was called kutwa uh, by way of a short kind of you know acronym um, and uh, it's in kutwa where, 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 where dada you know learned his marxism where dada learned his communism where he got his political education uh, where he basically uh, you know learned fluent russian it was also in moscow where dada was trained uh, in military tactics uh, and so on, and 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 Dada is part of this increasing, you know, legion of of revolutionaries who are who are trained in Moscow and who then are sent out to the world uh, to export the revolution and bring it about uh, in their uh, contexts. And so Moscow, in that sense, was the future that had that was made present, that the future already existed insofar as these individuals were concerned. And 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 for the lens of Dada and his and his fellow revolutionaries, I mean, how could it not? I mean, someone who came from a nothing background, really, for, who came from the most humblest of regions, here in a global capital, a global capital of the future to come, is is someone who's representing India. I mean, speaking of transformations, heck, it doesn't get more transformative than that. Uh, you know, for uh, as far as Dada, as far as Dada and other kind of you know individuals are concerned, uh, and so and so this is how uh, you know he comes to be involved uh, in this in this project of you know communist internationalism, and 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 and, and this is also where uh, those perhaps those social norms uh, and those cultural expectations are also breaking down, 
I mean, Moscow, uh, you know, one speaks of these grand kind of like ideas, but, you know, take one very small example that Dada quotes in his autobiography, uh, when he writes that, uh, when he writes about the sight of American, of, of black American, uh, you know, comrades, basically in relationships with white Soviet women. And he speaks about how that is inconceivable, uh, you know, from in, in the land uh, that they call home, which was predominantly, uh, you know, southern United States. Uh, and, uh, but, but, those, but, those, but those relationships, uh, those, those, those connections were possible in a place like Moscow. And so these very small instances, you know, are, are something that, that really tell Dada and uh, the historian of, of, what the, of what the euphoria uh, of this world really looked like. It was a world that had been inverted almost. It, had a, it was a world that seemed to be already transformed. And obviously, uh, when I say that, I, 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 I fully recognize that there's a lot else going on at this time. And there are other, uh, you know, revolutionaries, not just from India, but elsewhere, who write about this social, cultural, and economic experiment with in much more skeptical terms, uh, and and so one can obviously think about you know perhaps a dark uh, uh, you know underbelly uh, of this of the social experiment. But as far as Dada is concerned, uh, and he writes his memoirs in jail, uh, I mean this was basically the future made present, despite its many problems. Uh, and 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 Dada just to conclude our story then. Uh, you know, finishes his education uh, by the late 1920s. Uh, by 1929, he, he, he leaves for uh, India and he lands up in Bombay smuggling himself as a Lashkar again because the British Empire is deeply suspicious and vigilant uh, uh, when it comes to these roving revolutionaries. And he sets up, and he sets up his politics uh, basically in India. And and, and uh, amongst, he returns to Russia, he returns to the Soviet Union uh, as well, but then he comes back to India. But to cut a long story short, he eventually sets up his basically trade in, 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 in Madras of all places. Uh, and, and, and I have to say that this idea of, uh, of, a, of a small uh, Punjabi, a small you know, village, uh, Punjabi kind of you know, communist leader uh, speaking fluent Russian, Organizing laborers in Madras never ceases to amaze me, <laughs> and it's in Madras where where he's also arrested, and then he spends uh, a decade nearly uh, in, in in prison for his for his activism for his politics. Great, thank you so much. He's such a remarkable figure, and and this chapter was uh, one of my favorites. Uh, you know, you really get a feel for what these figures saw in Moscow and how transformative it would have been for them. Um, sure. And and again, the affect uh, of affective um, relationship with time that you talk about mm -hmm. really comes through in that chapter. Um, another question that seems to come up quite regularly in this book is that of indigeneity or foreignness uh, mm. of political ideas and traditions. The idea of communist or leftist ideas being foreign to South Asia is still around us, of course, uh, unfortunately. Um, it yeah. seems like the focus on the origins of ideas by the British and others emphasizes fixity and rigidity of intellectual traditions and identities. Whereas in your work, um, you know, by focusing on the translation and global circulation of ideas, you're emphasizing 
elasticity and malleability, at least to, to, in my reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could expand on this issue of indigeneity and foreignness uh, of communism. I'm happy to. Uh, and by way of uh, perhaps some kind of a preface, uh, I have to say that this is perhaps an unfortunate starting point, but it is also, mm-hmm. it is also a necessary starting point. Uh, this is a trap that is set up by the colonial archive. Uh, but more than that, more than being simply being a discursive trap, it is also um, a charge that both the colonial and the post-colonial states of India and Pakistan used with great effect and success against communist movements. Uh, I suppose more so in Pakistan than in India, where the, where the movement you know, uh, was much more, I suppose, uh, you know, perhaps... Uh, grew like much deeper roots, I suppose, uh, than, mm-hmm. than, um, than Pakistan. But uh, that argument of which effectively is an argument that says that communism is foreign uh, to the land, to India, is an argument that is inaugurated uh, by the colonial state. Uh, and, 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 the, and, and tragically, I mean, that kind of trope uh, has been echoed, not just obviously, as I said, through the colonial archive, it has also been echoed within historiography as well. Uh, And, you know, by way of a very broad and a crude generalization, um, communism is seen as an idea, as a body of ideas, as a movement, uh, is is broadly seen as, as, as a foreign import, which immediately kind of both delegitimizes that, that, that idea because it presents is as something that doesn't quite belong to this landscape of, of the subcontinent. Um, and of course, it, un- it, it understates and it underestimates uh, the degree to which communism actually became a part of the local landscape, which is a, a large part of what I try to do in my book, which is to show just how much and the extent to which it became part of local uh, politics. Uh, and so uh, that question of indigeneity and foreignness, to my mind, is a misleading question. Uh, it's a misleading question that reduces ideas in terms that reduces ideas to ideas of belonging. Uh, and I think that once we go down that route, uh, effectively, uh, you know, effectively any idea that is that is that critiques uh, dominant structures of power, uh, you know, runs the risk of being labeled as. Uh, as an idea that doesn't quite belong, as an idea that's foreign. It's not something that I have to say, especially in the case of Pakistan, uh, that is restricted to the left. I mean, feminist movements in Pakistan throughout their history have been labeled as, for example, you know, foreign kind of like movements, as, as movements that are that are funded by some foreign NGO, some foreign conspiracy of sorts, uh, which is a charge that is deliberately used uh, to delegitimize, uh, you know, these movements that, that, that speak of some kind of, you know, transformative change. Uh, and, and, and the left is not different, you know, from from that. And so, uh, but when it comes to communism and the left generally, I suppose that uh, that that uh, kind of uh, you know argument uh, is something that I that I trace uh, across uh, the the century, and and it's, and it's an argument that emerges, uh, you know, within the colonial imagination that tries to restrict and that tries to uh, you know obviously not just restrict the spread of communism, but also presents it as a proxy force, as a fifth column, as an agent of the Soviet Union that doesn't quite belong uh, within the intellectual traditions uh, and politics of India. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, and that was really helpful in understanding, you know, uh, how those arguments, um, well, 
understanding the arguments that we see around us today, it was really helpful to see, you know, the origins or the genealogy mm-hmm. of that sort of discourse. Um, so my next question is related to that of indigeneity and foreignness, uh, and it's about religious identity, um, uh, how religious identity and movements intersected with communist internationalism in India. Uh, for instance, in chapter two, we meet individuals like Shokat Osmani, who yeah. was part of the Hijrat movement. In chapters four and five, we encounter the Akali movement and the Kirti Kisan party in Punjab. Um, how are religious identities, ideas, and movements operating in the networks you're writing about? Um, if I'm not mistaken, one of the arguments he seemed to be making is that while religion clearly mattered to uh, in the imaginations um, of these figures, of some of these figures at least, uh, first, there is no clear religious secular divide, and second, communism was not understood to be incompatible with their religious beliefs, whether it's Islam or Sikhism or Hinduism. Um, yes, that's a, that's, a, that's a fair characterization, I would say. Uh, the communism in the in the especially in the early uh, stages of the movement uh, in India and elsewhere, I have to say, uh, is a very broad church, and and ideas that are otherwise held to be incompatible. Uh, this this broad and crude straw man like you know division that is drawn between religion and communism, uh, in, in in you know conventionally, uh, you know it's something that 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 doesn't quite exist. Uh, I mean, it's far messier, it's far more fluid. In fact, that division between religious and secular, as you say, uh, is not really a division that matters or, or even is, is relevant to that great extent. Um, uh, you, you mentioned a few figures, Shokat Osmani, you mentioned the Kali movement, you mentioned the Kirti Kisan Party and so on. And so uh, to give you an example, I mean, the Kirti Kisan Party, which is the first workers and peasants party that is a proxy, uh, basically, for, for the Communist Party of India, uh, is, uh, uh, is is basically a, a movement that emerges from uh, a socio-religious movement. That's how we historians would call it, uh, you know, which is, uh, which is the Akali movement in the 1920s. Uh, and so, you know, uh, figures who, who, who cut their political teeth in the Akali movement later become the leading stalwarts of the Kirti Kisan party uh, uh, in the Punjab. Uh, and so... Uh, much the same is true for uh, those who belong to the Khilafat movement uh, or to, to the Hijrit movement, which is a pan-Islamic movement, uh, for those who may be unaware of it. There's a pan-Islamic movement, and these are pan-Islamists who basically you know, draw these connections with, uh, with what they see as a liberatory promise and potential of Bolshevism uh, and, and, of, and of Soviet communism. Uh, and, and many of these pan-Islamists then become, again, uh, you know, leading members of the communist movement uh, in India and Shokar Usmani. Uh, is, 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 is one of them. And so, uh, yeah, it wasn't understood to be incompatible with the religious beliefs. In fact, and I'll end on this, uh, the, 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 the first issue that is taken out by the Kirti Kisan party uh, of a magazine called the Kirti uh, begins uh, with a quotation uh, from the Sikh holy scripture, the Guru Granth Sahib. And so, uh, you know, that is not really <laughs> seen as, 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 you know, to be in conflict. Uh, with, 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 with communism. Uh, the story, however, changes uh, in later decades, but at least, uh, you know, from the, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, those divides don't really, are not really as fixed as they may seem in hindsight or in retrospect. Great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, the way you dealt with religion in this in this book. So thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, so staying in Punjab in chapter four, you talk about how gender operated in these movements. Could you talk about this as it's a really important issue and often neglected one? 
Um, and in doing so, could you also tell the listeners about some of the women you discuss in this chapter, like Vimla Dung? And I obviously don't, you know, mean gender equals women, but yeah. you know, uh, the women were really important in the movement, as you describe, and masculinity and uh, is also at play, of course. Very much so. And perhaps I can I can I can start with the question of masculinity. And uh, one of the biggest frustrations of of undertaking this research was that there were far too many autobiographies of men um, as there were of uh, women. Um, and, and, and Vimla, uh, you know, Dang, you know, happens to be one of those figures who, who wrote, um, that autobiography, but tellingly, and I must emphasize this, tellingly, uh, those, uh, that, that autobiography, uh, is called fragments. Uh, and I think that that by itself, uh, you know, says a lot, uh, Vimla Dang, you know, she writes these memoirs in the third person. She doesn't use her name. Um, as, 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 as male revolutionaries do, uh, in which, you know, the, that impulse is to tell a very a story that is centered on, on the self. Uh, it's a very masculine impulse. It, uh, you know, undergirds and basically frames a story. Uh, Vimla's kind of like memoirs are very different uh, in that sense. Uh, and uh, as I said, she speaks of herself in the third person with a presumed name. She doesn't use a real name. But her story is nevertheless, I mean, deeply fascinating uh, for the insight that it provides into the role that women played uh, within the communist movement. She was born in 1926 uh, to a Kashmiri Pandit family in Lahore. Uh, she joins the communist movement and eventually the Communist Party of India while still in her teens. Uh, she is introduced to communism by another you know, incredible figure called Sohashini Chattopadde, uh, who was the first, and perhaps the who's perhaps I, I, I'm still trying to trace that, but I think she was the only Indian woman to attend the communist university of the toilers of the East in Moscow. Um, and she is, and she is, and she is, you know, and, and she is usually thought to be uh, the first woman who joined uh, the Communist Party of India. And it's through Sohashini uh, that Vimla learned about the Soviet Revolution in her recollection, and, and in her recollection, the unparalleled sacrifices as she saw it of the Soviet people, their remarkable achievements, and of course, the astonishing progress that uh, women had made in the Soviet Union. And these are all, you know, her kind of like, uh, you know, interpretations, of course. Uh, uh, and, 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 and it's through Sohashini and other, uh, you know, uh, women uh, comrades that, that Vimla comes into this movement, but she also comes into this movement through her elder brothers which is the story of many of the women who belonged in the movement, who, who joined the movement. And they joined the movement in part, uh, you know, through their male relatives. Because there were still, you know, <clears throat> there were still deep um, and, and, and rather heavy social consequences uh, for individual women uh, if they joined, uh, you know, a, a political movement, not just obviously uh, the CPI, but other movements uh, as well. And, 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 and Vimla, you know, speaks uh, of other women who are similarly interested uh, in, these, in these political questions, in these political movements. But those, but, but, but those are women who, who are either disowned by their families or basically, you know, cast off or cut adrift uh, from, from familiar support networks. Uh, and, 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 and the party in that sense, you know, becomes a home and a family for them to the extent uh, that the party also arranges uh, these farzi shadis, these pretend marriages uh, that that Anya Lumba superbly, uh, you know, uh, speaks about in her book Revolutionary Desires, in which uh, in which uh, women, uh, you know, are, are basically uh, uh, male and female comrades are married in these pretend marriages so that 
so that you know they're able to conduct their politics uh, relatively openly. Because otherwise, the social sanction of individual kind of like women conducting their politics uh, is far too great. Uh, so, uh, so Vimla's, uh, in some ways, you know, fragmented memoir, come journal, come diary, uh, you know, it provides a glimpse not just into the promise that was offered by communism as they saw it, uh, but also the restrictions that came with a politically active uh, life. Uh, and, 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 and the large story there is that there was no straightforward way uh, in which women could work within the communist movement. And I mean that in a very general sense. Uh, that the pressures and that the restrictions that women faced were were, were unique, uh, you know, to to them um, in a way that were not really shared by their male uh, counterparts. Uh, and just by way of um, you know, perhaps concluding what would otherwise be a huge kind of like you know topic of discussion. Uh, I mean, Kama McLean, uh, for example, has done some excellent work uh, when it comes to women revolutionaries and how they defied and appropriated norms and ideals around, you know, concepts of, 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 of womenhood that allowed them to skirt, you know, uh, state intelligence and, 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 and disciplinary uh, uh, networks, which allowed them to actually be, uh, you know, key members of, of revolutionary uh, and communist uh, movements. Uh, and, and the book that I, that I cannot speak highly enough about is a book that Anya Lumba recently, uh, you know, wrote, uh, which, which navigates, uh, which, which explores uh, the, the 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 many different kind of uh, you know uh, modes in which in, in which women participated uh, in the movement. Uh, but the last uh, and actually made the movement possible. Uh, but the last thing that I will say, well, uh, two things I will say on this is that uh, that disjuncture between uh, between what one finds by way of text. Uh, and what one finds by way of other sources, uh, you know, is made very clear in, 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 in some of the photographs that I found uh, and which, I, which are photographs that I reproduce in the book that show, that show peasant gatherings uh, in which, which are actually, uh, in which there's a huge participation of women. But that participation, but that, but that, but that involvement uh, looks much reduced. One uh, when one comes to the archive and when one tries to explore, well, you know, where are these autobiographies? And those autobiographies, there are some very important ones out there, Bina Das, Kalpana Dat, I mean, you know, Vimla Dang and others. Uh, that, but those, the number of those autobiographies, you know, pales in comparison uh, to those accounts, to those, you know, to those memoirs that are written by uh, men uh, and, and who, who document their role uh, in the movement. Uh, and, and there it is very clear in, 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 in those uh, accounts that, that men write, it is very clear that, you know, that, that, that these are individuals who can also afford to be away from home. Because as they are away from home, uh, you know, someone else, uh, which is to say their sister or their mother or their wife, is taking care of basically, you know, uh, you know everything to do with home. Uh, and so in that sense, I mean, uh, you know, it's that kind of perhaps indivisible presence and labor uh, that, that, that also happens in the background that, that actually allows these men to do what they do uh, in the sphere of revolutionary and political action. So uh, I suppose the large, uh, I suppose the short answer of that is that, that the question of, of, of women uh, and communism uh, is, 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 is a story both of uh, perhaps, uh, you know, again, certain dreams to do with liberation, but also a story, but also at the same time, a story of restrictions 
and of unique circumstances that were that 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 that, that women had to kind of like put up with and face as they did the revolutionary politics great Thank you so much. And I actually just finished reading Kama McLean's book. So actually reading your book and her book back to back was, uh, you know, they both go really well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, thank you. I would love to read Ani Lumbia's uh, book it's as fantastic. well. Um, so at the end of chapter five, uh, the next one, you argue that political fluidity and occasional unity of the intellectual and political climate grew tenuous over the course of the interwar period. Um, could you explain what you mean uh, by the political fluidity of the 1920s, as well as you know what changed uh, in the mid uh, 1930s? I know these are both very big questions. Sure, I mean, but but broadly speaking, uh, uh, I suppose a larger story is that communism, from starting off as a very broad camp uh, that attracts politicians and political activists of various ideological and political persuasions. It becomes more crystallized. It becomes perhaps uh, more uh, reduced uh, by the late 1930s and the early 1940s. And I don't mean reduced in terms of numbers, because by the 1940s, I mean, the CPI is a huge movement. Uh, it has hundreds of thousands uh, you know, of members through its affiliate organizations and so on. Uh, I mean reduced in terms of those connections. Uh, that really uh, that really made the 1920s and 1930s stand out. Uh, one part of that answer is that uh, there are there is obviously a shift towards a certain kind of orthodoxy that is brought in by Stalinism in the Soviet Union, and so uh, there is that story of ideological, perhaps uh, you know, uh, orthodoxy uh, that that is happening internationally, uh, but in India as well. Uh, I mean, aside from that story of ideological uh, restrictiveness. Uh, there is also the story of uh, of an immense amount of state persecution and this and this and this deep kind of like split that slowly emerges between uh, the nationalist camp quote unquote and the communist camp uh, quote unquote uh, and and that and, and those divisions become starker there's, those divisions become deeper owing to a variety of reasons uh, but communism by uh, the by the by the time that decolonization happens uh, looks markedly different. Uh, from its 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 initial years, and so that uh, political fluidity, by which I mean those those connections with, as you as you mentioned, with with not just nationalist movements, but with, with also with social religious movements, uh, you know, they they basically uh, fade away by the 1940s. And and by way of a concrete example, the very same uh, Akalis who joined, <clears throat> uh, you know, the communist movement. Uh, you know, are faced by, uh, in the 1940s by the charge of basically being Gnostics or atheists who had who had basically, you know, gone away and left their religion. Uh, so that, I think, is a good example of the change uh, that takes place uh, within uh, this period. But of course, that's a huge, gen- that's a huge generalization. I mean, things look very different. Uh, you know, uh, in, in very local contexts across India and so on. So, but that's a general story. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so in chapter six, you look at how the British imagined an attempt to suppress uh, the Indian communist movement. Uh, you've already addressed some of these issues before. Um, so perhaps in, in with this question, I was wondering if you could just focus on the Meerut conspiracy case. Yes. Um, and because you, you seem to think that that's incredibly important uh, in the story, right? Indeed. Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 the, it's, it's yet another conspiracy case. Uh, a number of uh, conspiracy cases have been launched in the 1920s. 
the slew of Peshawar conspiracy cases, uh, the Kanpur conspiracy case, and all of these conspiracy cases, they, they attempt to persecute and to, and to stamp out uh, what they see as communism uh, in India. And they attempt to establish that communist, that the communist conspiracy as they see it. Uh, and so uh, Meerut, uh, the conspiracy case, which is a case that lasts for four years from 1929 to 1933, uh, this, is the, this is the huge moment uh, within the legal history of uh, India and in the history of communism uh, as well. Because uh, it's not just that uh, the British are keen uh, to paint and cast uh, communism as a fifth column, as a proxy agent, the Soviet Union, as I mentioned earlier. Um, to also make uh, the British prosecutor, Langford James, he also makes a, a really uh, intriguing argument. Uh, and he says in his many speeches towards the court, he makes a claim basically that communism was alien to the land and that Bolsheviks, as he, as he understood them, were anti-family, anti-God, anti-India, and so on. In some ways, what Meerut sought to do was that it sought to stamp out and to declare illegal and criminal communism as a body of idea in of itself. Uh, so uh, it wasn't simply enough to, to ban the communist movement, uh, which it was. It, one also had to render criminal communist thought per se, because it was against everything that India was. Uh, and so uh, me, it's Meerut that actually inaugurates these arguments. And I say inaugurates these arguments, one can, one can think, well, what difference really does a courtroom make in the larger scheme of things? But actually it makes a huge difference because what happens is Meerut, what happens in Meerut is breathlessly reported uh, in the local press, uh, you know, across India. And those are arguments that then become, you know, a key part of the arsenal that, 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 the political opponents of the communists use with great effect, I have to say, uh, in the 1940s and in the 1950s and beyond. In some ways, we're still stuck to those arguments. And, and that's not to say that it's Meerut alone that is responsible you know, for inaugurating this argument, but Meerut you know, exemplifies and symbolizes uh, you know, that colonial imagination uh, that's, that they, they basically never saw communism as, uh, as, as, a, as a thought that belonged uh, to this landscape. And those charges of communism being anti-God, anti-family, anti-India, anti-Pakistan, you name it, um, are basically you know, charges that are, uh, are basically thrown at uh, the left generally and communism more specifically, uh, sometimes obviously uh, to great effect. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so you've talked about, um, you know, the impact of, I guess, Stalinism and then a British suppression and meet at conspiracy case. Um, and then comes partition uh, uh, of the subcontinent yeah. in uh, 1947. So I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, talk about the impact of partition and, and what communist internationalism looks like in, um, in, in the aftermath of partition. Uh, partition is, uh, how should I put it? Uh, it's a devastating blow, obviously. Um, and it's a devastating blow, not just to uh, Indian communists, but partition also, uh, you know, symbolizes uh, in a way that nothing else does uh, the, the dissatisfaction and the unfulfillment that comes with freedom. We tend to think of freedom as a time of euphoria, as a time of fulfillment as a time of achievement, of, of, of overcoming. 
but the kind of freedom that is attained, uh, at least in their imaginations, the people that I speak of, you know, is a freedom that is, as Bina Das puts it, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a moment of light and shade. Uh, you know, Faiz Ahmad Faiz also speaks of it when he speaks of this, this, this like, you know, spotted dawn, uh, this dark Ujala that he speaks of in his, in his poem, uh, you know, The Morning of Freedom, Subhay Azadi. And so, uh, you know, but that, but that devastation that partition brings with it uh, does not obviously kill the dream. I mean, it's not that the utopian vision ends. What that simply means is that freedom is still, still lies further along the horizon. That this freedom is not the freedom that these revolutionaries dreamt of, yearned for, worked for. That that freedom still lay unfulfilled. That that road, you know, was 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 still something that they had to travel on to to attain, you know, true and substantive freedom. And by way of an example. Uh, one of the key slogans that emerged from the communist movement in both India and Pakistan, I have to say, uh, soon after partition was, uh, Ye azadi jhuti hai, that this freedom is a lie. Uh, and that, you know, real freedom, substantive freedom, uh, you know, was still awaited. And so, uh, whilst partition, it does deal a huge blow uh, to the communist movement, and not least in terms of splitting up the communist movement between India and Pakistan, in Pakistan, the Communist Party, in West Pakistan, the Communist Party is founded in 1948. And it's founded in 1948 because uh, people don't really think that partition is there to last. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's seen as something that's temporary. Uh, but so it's only in 1948 when they decide, well, hey, you know, we might really need a different Communist Party for West Pakistan. East Pakistan is a different question. Uh, uh, but uh, in West Pakistan, at least we need a different kind of, you know, common, we need a new Communist Party. And so... Uh, but that, uh, but those connections uh, between those communist movements, they continue, uh, and and those and those connections between progressives across India and Pakistan, they they last uh, into obviously the period that we call post-colonial, uh, and 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 those visions and those and those kind of uh, you know dreams of of of, of substantive freedom, uh, they they continue nonetheless, and and if the interwar era is one period. Uh, which held out a different possibility, then uh, the 50s, 60s, and 70s are another period uh, which holds out different possibilities mm-hmm. for progressives across the subcontinent. So I've taken so much of your time, uh, but before I let you leave, could you just tell us what you're working on now? Gosh, uh, it's a very, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very uh, ill-conceived, uh, or rather poorly conceived, not a ill-conceived, but a poorly conceived set of projects um, uh, in this, uh, at this time. But uh, I'm working on two concurrent projects. Uh, the first project looks at the question of culture uh, in the era of decolonization, or in the era of third world solidarity, in the era of Afro-Asianism and the Cold War in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, and I'm deeply interested in this question of, of, of transforming culture and, and the hope and the promise that the sphere of culture holds out uh, to newly uh, decolonized nations. And so part of what I'm doing is I'm tracing, uh, amongst others, you know, Pakistani writers, intellectuals, and artists uh, in these Afro-Asian you know, writers' forums and congresses and so on, uh, and really seeing what that politics was all about. Uh, so that's the first project. And the second project, is uh, you know is roughly speaking roughly speaking has to do with the nightmare of decolonization. I think sometimes 
uh, we, we, we emphasize, uh, you know, understandably, uh, perhaps the promise, the unfulfilled potential of decolonization. But I'm also interested in thinking about now the question of uh, fascism and, and the purchase that it has uh, within India, uh, which is why I, I shorthandedly called it, you know, a nightmare. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in thinking about the question of fascism in the colony. And so I'm thinking about uh, and looking at closely at these paramilitary movements that operate in the 1930s and 1940s, movements like the Khatsar Tariq, uh, the Akali, uh, you know, uh, Sena or the Forge, uh, and uh, obviously the RSS. Uh, and I'm really, you know, I've, I've been working on this with a colleague of mine for some time now, and we're deeply interested uh, in the question of, of, of those fascist imaginaries uh, and that question of how these movements come to uh, embody and represent and express a mode of politics uh, that is that is broadly speaking uh, that that is uh, fascist in orientation and idea. Great, thank you. Both of them sound fascinating, so I would love to read them. Uh, you know, when they're published. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sami. Thank you. I think I took too much of your time, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. No, no, thank you for for giving us so much of your time. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.